Hello and welcome to the Truth Legal Podcast with me, Andrew Gray. Today I'm delighted to have with me Vanessa Ugatti. Vanessa guides lawyers and accountants, but Vanessa is so much more than that. She's a motivational speaker, best-selling author, an all-round bundle of positivity and energy. Now, the reason that I'm having this conversation with Vanessa is because her principles will be universally applicable. So it doesn't matter whether or not you're a lawyer or accountant. But in addition to that, as Vanessa works so often with lawyers, she'll be able to assist those who listen to this podcast, uh, clients of this firm and other clients, in how to interact with lawyers. Because we are a strange breed. And often how we charge our clients is somewhat confusing, which is, I think, fair to say, isn't it, Vanessa? It is. I think it's confusing for everybody, isn't it? It is. Now, first proper question, Vanessa, tell me about you, your your background, potted history, and how it is you found yourself in this rather unusual, but uh, for me, very exciting niche. So I'll try and keep it short, because when you get to my age, there's an awful lot to talk about. (laughs) So um, I had a very varied background, and I was just one of those people who didn't actually know what she wanted to do when she grew up. So I certainly didn't wake up saying one day saying, I'm going to be the true worth expert and I'm going to coach accountants and lawyers. It's just not something that came to mind. However, let's go back a few years and say back in 97, I was working in a an export department and they wanted me to get involved in putting an appraisal system into the department along with other people, which meant that I was going to have to be doing some training of people. So that's when it first started. And they sent me on a three-day presentation skills course. And that's when I discovered my love and fear of public speaking. So that's how it all started. Anyway, fast forward many years or quite a number of years And I was um, in the same organisation and I really absolutely loathed it. I loathed what I was doing. And having had this experience of public speaking, I knew there was something and training. I knew there was something to do with that that I wanted to do, but I just didn't really have it pinpointed as it were. As luck would have it, in 1999, the organisation asked for people to take voluntary redundancy. And I'd asked before and failed to get it. So my hand went up really fast. And I took it and I left the organisation with a few grand in my pocket and really not much clue about where I was going or what I was doing, but just a belief that I wanted to be involved in training. And I didn't know about coaching in those days. Does that make sense so far? It does. And, and how did you get from 99 until 2019? We've got 20 years to cover there. I know. It was quite long, <laughs> quite slow, and I'm not going to go through all of that. But needless to say, I did go and get another job, but part-time while I was exploring avenues, training avenues, because that was my idea to get in it. And remember, I hadn't done any of that stuff when I was working in corporate. So I was really coming at it from a place of not really knowing anything. But, you know, when you follow what you're being guided to do, you know, follow your heart, as it were, it's a bit corny saying that, but that's what I was doing, then things start gradually showing themselves. So I landed up joining Toastmasters International, you know, who teach you how to speak in public, and that propelled me forward. Um, And then moving forward to jumping ahead to about 2006, I was in another job, and, and eventually I just left it because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I set up a business helping business people speak in public. 
And my main interest was actually in the fear of public speaking. You know, what gets in the way of being people being able to present, you know, intelligent, capable professionals who get up there and then they just fall to pieces because their mind is saying this is really scary. So I did do a bit of um, studying of NLP and that kind of thing, because that really interested me, anything to do with the mind. But unfortunately, I had some good experiences with that. But unfortunately, when 2008 came, there was calamity in the world, as you know, because it was a, what's the word? I can't even think of the word. Crash, really, yes. International banking crash. Yes, it was a crash. And I had a personal crash at the same time. So that didn't really work out very well. And I won't go into the personal details because it was really all too unpleasant and listeners want to hear something that's positive. So that was fine. I did that for a while. And I, when I came out of all of that drama, I then went out networking again and I started working with small business owners on a one-to-one basis. And by that time, the focus was on more broadly on mindset rather than just public speaking, because I was realized, I guess, that most people have got something going on in their mind that's holding them back, stopping them in some way from really moving ahead. And so yeah, I would go into a networking uh, event and I would look around and it was very unscientific what I did. And I'd see somebody I liked the look of and I'd walk up and I'd start talking to them. And then I'd start finding out what their problems were. So that was absolutely fine. I was doing that and it was moving me forward. And I was working on my own stuff that I needed to work on at the same time. And in 2012 or 13, 12, I guess it was, I just had this niggle that was in the back of my mind that there was something else, but I didn't consciously know what it was. And then, you know, again, when we're putting things out there, somehow or another things get brought to us. I stumbled across a marketing program for specifically for coaches. And it said, you have to have a niche. Now, I'd heard about niching sometime before, but I hadn't got a clue what my niche was. And I certainly didn't know how to go about implementing it. So I thought, okay, after a lot of procrastination and trepidation, I spent quite a lot of money to sign up for this program. And it was definitely the right thing to do, because on one of the early workshops, they asked some questions. And I wrote down some answers. And amongst those answers was this whole subject of value or worth. Now, Andrew, I had absolutely no idea how that had appeared on the piece of paper. How interesting. Very interesting. And and, and how this takes you into law and accountancy. That's, uh, I'm I'm wondering, because it's not obvious how you'd end up in law from this sort of moments that you had in uh, 2012, 2013. No, I I want to just finish that bit, then I'll address that question if that's all right with you. So I, um, they said, the marketing people said, that is marketable. And I said, well, you're the expert, so I'll follow that. And I, you know, all through this time, all through a lot of years, I've taken a lot of leaps of faith. And so who's ever listening, you know, if you have something that you want to do and you're getting these ideas, be willing to take a leap of faith. That's what I would say. That's another aside, I know. So I went off networking and I started talking to professionals because you know out networking there's always accountants and lawyers and so I'd be asking them about this whole subject and I discovered quite quickly that um, many people struggle with charging Uh, many people undervalue themselves or undercharge discount and over service clients so I thought oh that's really interesting so that was really good um, knowledge if you like for me to be gathering so then I started looking at clients I'd been working with 
And I discovered I'd already been helping them with this, even though I wasn't consciously aware that I had been. I hadn't been thinking, oh, this is what I've been doing. And of course, if somebody lacks confidence or they've got a block holding them back in in some way, it's almost bound to show up around the conversations with money because so many people are really uncomfortable about it. And it's partly the way we've been brought up to think about money. So I thought, oh, good, more grist for the mill, as it were. Then the best moment came was when I decided to shine the light on myself. And that's when I had a big shock because I realised that I was absolutely, completely clueless and hopeless when it came to having those conversations with clients. I was so embarrassed. I would avoid it like the plague. And so that was like what you call a light bulb moment, Andrew, because then I realised, of course, that my unconscious mind and the unconscious mind knows everything was prompting me to bring this forward because it knew that I needed to solve the problem for myself. And of course, then when I could solve the problem for myself, I'd be able to help other people. So that's the process. That's exactly what happened. That's the whole story. And this takes us to your business and the book, uh, thetrueworthexpert.com, which really is one of the most slickest, brilliant websites I have ever seen. I really do think it's um, a sight to behold the website. Plenty of videos, materials in there. Your personality comes across very clearly. And of course, this Amazon best-selling book, um, True Worth. Would you tell my listeners about how this book came to be? How long did it take you to write it? You know, how did you go about writing it? How do you buy it? How much is it? You know, tell us everything there is to know about your book. Okay, Um, I'm happy to do that. So it's quite a small book. Again, you know, on this marketing program, they said, you know, you need to have this book that positions you as the the expert, etc. But there's another bit of the story I haven't actually told you, which um, I almost forgot, which how could I possibly do that? So I was in bed one night or one morning, you know, when you're half awake and half asleep, that rather nice feeling when you're quite drowsy. Well, it's at that point that the unconscious mind is really open and your conscious mind is gone. And the formula that I use, which appears in the book, actually appeared in my mind. Now, Okay. An epiphany. <laughs> an epiphany. So when I perceived it, and I use the word perceive because I don't know what else to use, I somehow instinctively knew that it was correct. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never, I didn't, I didn't have anything written or created or anything. That was interesting. So I better just share the formula now. And the formula is UV, the letters UV, which is understanding value, uh, plus CV, which is communicating value, plus CD, which is confident delivering your fees, equals CW charging what you're worth. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's right. <laughs> that's so right. Algebra- so, Vanessa, an algebra equation, which is yes. not so simple, popped into your head one morning in bed. And essentially, this has been the foundations of your business and your book. That's right. That's yes. Does that sound unreal? Does that sound unreal? Or do you think it I'm does, making it up? It does sound a little woo-woo, but we can roll with it. We can. We can. Well, so- it, it's, it's honestly, I'm the most truthful person I know in the world. So it's, it's, it's absolutely the truth. But, it, you know, I'm going to labor on this a little bit because, you know, the unconscious mind is incredibly powerful and it holds so much information and knowledge. It processes information at 
thousands, if not millions of times faster than the conscious mind. So it's incredibly powerful. And so it knows a lot about us and it knows what we're thinking about. And so it's uh, it's in the background. You know, have you had a situation, I'm sure you have, where you've got a problem and then you're trying to find an answer and you can't find the answer. And then you get fed up and you go away and you leave it. And maybe you go and do something mundane like mow the lawn or wash up or something like that. And then an answer pops into your head. It happens to me all the time. It's usually in the shower. Or in the shower, that's fine. Train, often a train works with the rhythmical sort of train track noise that helps me come to a conclusion. In fact, if I want to do some deep thinking, I'll just go pointlessly on a train because I think the answer to whatever I'm thinking about is going to come to me on the train, I guess is a similar concept. Yeah, and maybe there's, because of that sort of movement and the da 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 there's, you know, you're getting all to, all, almost into a meditative state. And so it's absolutely no different from what happened for me. It was just that I happened to be in bed at the time. Uh, and I know that I often get stuff in bed, you know, stuff for posts and things like that to write, often when I'm in bed. Why? Because I'm more relaxed and the unconscious mind is open. So it's not as incredulous as it might sound. I mean, I, I want it to sound incredulous because for me it was when it came. But now when I rationalise it, I think because I was thinking about the subject, the unconscious mind was working in the background and the unconscious mind will work in anybody's background. And of course, you more, the more you engage with it, the more receptive it is, the more it works for you. Now, Vanessa, so, can, we, can, can we explore this equation then, which I've written down by, I, I missed the answer. So is it UV plus yes. CV yes. plus CD equals CW, value? CW, CW, charging what so you're worth. In, in very simple terms, could you explain that equation to my listeners? So, yes, of course I can. So understanding your value I say, is at the heart of everything. And I know that this is about the charging thing, but the value, the understanding of the value is not just about money. It's about understanding your value. So you can use it in any area of your life. And I say, understanding your value is the foundation of everything. And it's very linked to self-worth. And self-worth is at the heart of everything we do and actually drives our behavior. So if if we're just putting it on the charging side, if a lawyer or any other professional does not understand their value or the value of what they do, which a lot of them don't, because the value is unconscious, it's not a conscious thing, then they struggle with the whole charging process. Does, does I, that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, I own a law firm and have acted for clients in a variety of areas of law and of course have to charge clients however we do that and i've got to say it's one of my least favorite things to talk about with a client and it's the same for all our lawyers there is a myth i think out there that lawyers are just desperate to charge their clients well actually i think it's the opposite actually they're desperate not to charge their clients hate discussing fees no idea what it is that they ought to charge uh, the, the confused between hourly rates and fixed fees and value-based billing. But wh what the lawyers really want to do is do a good job and leave someone else to deal with the money matters. They just really not want to have an eye on, on that sort of clock or costs. And I imagine that's your finding as well with lawyers, actually. If you, when you first started dealing with us, 
is we kind of want to do a good job. We're probably fairly perfectionist and conscientious and all that. And no, yes, they want to earn a good sum, but they don't really want to earn that sum from their clients. Well, that's my um, <laughs> understanding of lawyer. You, you giggle. You, you, is that a giggle in agreement, Vanessa? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think it's like anything. There, there will be some lawyers, you know, maybe in the, maybe I can't say it, but the magic circles, I've just said it, that are, you know, really into really, really high billing and they don't have any problems whatsoever. But I think there's a massive breed of lawyers and th- these are the ones I'm interested in who um, went into law because they they like it, but also because they want to help people. And, you know, when you look at law, there are so many different disciplines, aren't there? And there's so many disciplines that are around helping people who are in difficult situations. And so those people tend to fall into a category of people who really don't like discussing fees with their clients or or anything of that nature because they feel uncomfortable with it. They want to help the client. And so, yes, they have a personality type. The ones particularly I work with are being conscientious of being good at what they do, wanting to do a good job for the client, being even perfectionistic, um, some of them people-pleasing and quite sensitive. And, of course, maybe that's not what the general public think. And I'm sure before I worked with them, I didn't think that either. And I think it's very easy to just say all of a particular type of person are this or all of a particular type of person are that. So there are definitely lots of lawyers who are absolutely delightful, lovely people who are concerned about their clients and actually put their clients first to the detriment of the business and often to the detriment of themselves as well. So my job is actually to help the lawyers balance creating value for the clients with creating value for the business and looking after themselves, like an equilateral triangle. That's how I saw it most recently, where Thank all you, sides are equal. Well, you, you dealt with I think, mostly the first element of the equation, the UV. But what about the second element, the CV? CV, communicating value. If you don't understand your value, then you're having no chance of communicating it, which is why the UV has to come first. So it just goes to show how intelligent the unconscious mind is as well, doesn't it? So I think what happens with lawyers, what I've experienced anyway, is that they talk about price. They don't talk about value. They don't even think about the value having that discussion with clients. They're very focused on the legal things that they have to do to get the job done, not having the conversation with the client about the value of what they're doing and what it will mean to them when the job, when the problem has been solved, when the problem has gone away. And I think part of the problem is, is to do with the way they bill, you know, because they're billing features, aren't they? They're not billing benefits. We've had this phone call, we've made this report, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other. They're all features. And the client isn't really interested in the features. They're interested in what's in it for them, what's the benefit. So that's another thing. And and the other thing I've noticed over the last few years is that when lawyers want to buy, more or less the first thing they say is, what does it cost? I might get an email from somebody saying, what would it cost you to come into our firm and talk to our fee earners? Well, what do you mean by that? How long is a piece of string? So the first thing they always think about is, what's the cost? So they're not, their thinking is wrong. They're not focused on the value. So you can't communicate the value to a client until you understand your own value. And then it's important because once you start communicating the value with clients and they understand what they're really getting, 
it diminishes the price in their eyes. They're not seeing the price in the same way anymore because price and value, of course, are very different, aren't they? Yes. Does that answer so, that question? It does. And it's mind-boggling, actually, just hearing you talk. Not that what you say is in any way illogical. It's just these are things that, as a law firm owner, I've not always applied my mind to. And I'm, I'm genuinely learning from this podcast. So thank you for your time. Now, tell me about the, the third element, the CD part. Confident delivering your fees. In essence, talking about money. People have got such a lot of beliefs about money. All of us have, because we all grew up hearing things like money is the root of all evil, filthy lucre, money doesn't grow on trees. So we mix money up with emotion. And when you mix money up with emotion, then it causes that feeling inside, which makes you feel uncomfortable. And so when people feel uncomfortable, what do they do? They move away from whatever causes them that discomfort. And in this sense, they'll do the discounting for no reason. They'll over-service the client. And that is just automatic behavior. Now, if, for example, a lawyer is working on, say, divorce or something to do with children, something where there's a lot of emotion going on, then certain personality types, again, those who are actually very caring, will get sucked into the client's emotion. And then they think, well, they, I can't possibly charge them this, so I'll take some off. Because they're trying to reduce the client's pain, because they think the pain is going to be involved in, in how much they pay. So they get sucked into that. So I try and help people understand that money isn't emotional. Money is just a means of exchange. And actually, when you're comfortable knowing that what you're doing has a value to the client, then when you come to talking about the money side of things, a lot of the emotion has been discharged. Now, Vanessa, that all makes a great deal of sense to me, as I said previously, but it's still difficult discussing fees when the numbers are so high. For example, I have a friend, lawyer friend, in London, doing insolvency work that charges six fifty an hour. Well, wow. yes, up in the north, it is nothing like that. A third of that, if not less, an hour. So we, as lawyers, know the, the variations in hourly rates, and we also know that those that charge the most aren't necessarily any better lawyers. But we also know that the general public and lawyers themselves often associate high price with quality. And that's a difficult one. For example, in my law firm, we want to be affordable, but we are most aware that when we say that we're affordable, as a, from a marketing perspective, people might assume that we're just not very good at what we do. Well, actually, I think we're pretty good at what we do, but we'd rather have low profit margins and not be expensive to our clients, often because we're dealing with people going through horrendous situations and we don't really want to charge people, as you've just sort of alluded to. Now, would you have any advice to me and anyone else about um, you know, f setting that rate? And, or maybe I've just missed the point even asking about rates, but I know it's on our minds as, as lawyers. It's just drilled into us. The question is a bit of an amorphous one, but if you could disentangle my uh, silly question, that would be most grateful. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. And it's a difficult one because you've made a decision that you're going to be affordable. When I look at a firm on LinkedIn, if they're saying affordable, I think 
okay, I'm going to w walk away from them because there's no room for manoeuvre there. So I think it is a question of looking at can we afford as a business to just be affordable and have very low margins and be working really, really hard in order for us to make a decent living? That's the question I would ask you. Does affordable also mean that when fee earners are working, they're working tremendously hard and yet they don't feel that great because they're not really bringing in that much money? You're right. They don't always feel great. And of course, the less they, money they bring in, the less they are paid, rather obvious. But I often look to the Aldi example. Now, Aldi, uh, like the brand or load the brand, we all know that it's a low-cost brand that sells very similar things to other supermarkets. And we also know that their profit margin is probably around 1%, 1.5%. So every £100 you spend there, Aldi might make £1.50's profit if they're lucky. Now, I look at that business and think, fabulous. They're not ripping anybody off there. And we all get there what their, their brand is and so on. Um, and I look at Waitrose and I think, oh my goodness, my shopping there is going to be five times more expensive. So be careful what it is I spend there. But I suppose in my head, I regard Waitrose as better than Aldi. And that's my conundrum with law, Vanessa. I, I, I see it from your perspective and I, I also see it from mine. Now, from the 25th of November 2019, there are some rather fundamental changes happening to the way that lawyers are regulated. I imagine there's only lawyers that really know about this sort of regulation and, and people like yourself, Vanessa. After the 25th of November, there will be freelance solicitors, which sounds pretty cool, really. But there are going to be uh, some challenges for people engaging freelance solicitors and whether they should engage them or whether they should use traditional law firms. Do you have any tips for my audience, Vanessa? So it's like anything, Andrew, isn't it? You get what you pay for. And in terms of legal services, if you go to a freelance solicitor who is not regulated by the solicitor's regulation authority, then you're not going to have the same cover. Would that be the right word? There are some definite differences, and one of which is the insurance position probably isn't going to be as strong as a regulated law firm. Yeah, that's that, that would be something I'd be concerned about. And if somebody's not regulated at all by the SRA, then you don't really know the quality of the work you're going to get from them. And in fact, what their qualifications are. Because if you're a regulated solicitor, you have a certain level and you have certain things that you have to do and you must do for your authority. And you probably have higher levels of insurance so a person's covered. So the way I look at it is like this. If you go on a holiday, you want to have an ATOL or an APTA ABTA holiday, because that way you're covered if anything goes wrong. But most people in the public would not know the same thing really applied to solicitors, because you've got no port of call, have you, if the person is not regulated, if something goes wrong. You might be able to bring a claim against them, but will they have insurance? Will they still be there? It's a, it's a good point. And I don't, I don't think most people, in fact, I was with somebody the other day, well, a few weeks ago, actually, who said, oh, he's having real problems with his solicitor and um, not getting back to them or whatever. And I said, is the solicitor regulated? And this guy is quite a knowledgeable person in lots of ways. And he said, oh, I don't know. I saw, and he showed me the letterhead. And I looked down and said, oh, there it is. Yes, he is regulated. So at least you can go to them and say, look, this person isn't behaving as they need to behave. And so I don't think the members of the public would know that. And I think it's a little bit like will writing. There's another one. A hornet's nest, isn't it? Because you've got 
all and sundry out there doing will writing who are not regulated lawyers, who are not even lawyers or regulated solicitors, I should say. And so you're not getting necessarily the same quality of work or level of work. And I know wills are something that gets sold quite cheap by law firms, which I always think is crazy because a will is an incredibly important document. And with the way families are complex these days and blended families and what have you, I think it needs to be right because there's no point in having a will that's useless when you die in terms of your family, is it? And so, you know, if you go to a will writer who's not a regulated solicitor, have they done a will writing course in a couple of weekends or, you know, are they just doing very bog standard things? Do they actually know what they're doing is what I'm trying to say. And the answer is they may not do. So I think it's really important to know that when you're going to see any professional, not just lawyers, that they do have the right level of qualifications. They do belong to a body where you have recourse if there's a problem. That's what I would say. And that those people will be more expensive than people down the other end of the scale. Bless her, I agree with all of that you've just said. What I find, though, is that the general public can't very easily determine who is a good lawyer from a bad lawyer in the same way that when I go to see a GP I don't know whether the GP is any good or not so when I see my GP I I know whether they shake my hand you know how friendly they are to me how much time they give me and whether I've connected with them but I don't really know whether they've diagnosed my problems accurately whether the medication they've given me is the right one now I know how I'll react to it but I, they they still might have assisted me by giving me the wrong medication or whatever. You can see it's difficult to know a good doctor from a bad doctor and very difficult as well to know a good lawyer from a bad lawyer. Regulation is an indicator of someone's standing, sure. But when it comes to price, is it your position, Vanessa, that you know, generally speaking, the more that the lawyer regards themselves as having experience and value and learnedness and all that, that they can charge more? And in fact, it is right that those that charge more are probably the better lawyers. Yes, Yes. indeed. (laughs) However, as you said earlier on, that's not to say that there are some people charging a lot who are not that good. So it is very difficult because, as you say with the doctor analogy, it is difficult for people to know if the lawyer is good or not. I suppose, apart from the level of making sure that they are regulated, is to be checking out testimonials and of course, if other people have used them and the results they're getting, because if it's a results-based thing, then you probably can check it out. Now, when you're training lawyers, and you must have trained hundreds and met thousands probably, what is it that you're looking for when you're trying to analyse how capable the lawyer is? Is it their ability to apply to emails, to shake your hand or look you in the eye? What sort of stuff is it that you look for and what clients who are trying to work out which lawyer to engage with or accountant what they should be looking for are there any signs if it was me I would be going by my gut feeling because that's how I operate a lot you know how do I feel around this person you know what's their eye contact like are they are they engaging with me do they are they comfortable in themselves what's the experience they've got how many years experience have they got doing what they do can they tell me about some of the projects that they've done successfully all of those things but I guess for me mainly it would be how do I feel around them 
they feel like a decent person. I think that's a great answer. Um, it's quite reassuring that you, you gave that answer, actually. It is about feeling and gut feeling, and most people make decisions in those ways. Um, thank you, Vanessa. Let's put a smile on my face. Could we talk about public <laughs> speaking? Well, I'll tell you why. I was absolutely terrified of public speaking all the way through school and university, and at law school, I realized that I'd have to do some public speaking. And I was, again, so terrified that I paid for a little old lady in York who used to be an opera singer to teach me how to public speak. Essentially, she was just giving me confidence building lessons. And I remember being in her conservatory when she's in the lounge, and I had to project my voice saying, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And I only had a few <laughs> sessions with her, but it did help. I'm not a great public speaker, but I've had to have some lessons because I was so scared of it, actually. Now, why are people like me so incredibly scared of public speaking? And it seems to be an English thing because Americans seem to be just very natural when they're interviewed. Could you just talk to us about public speaking? So I mentioned before we were doing this recording that I the, no, I did it in the recording as well, didn't I, that I taught public speaking. And my interest was always around what's the mind telling us. And I think that the reason why not just you, but lots of people are scared of public speaking is down to the fear of rejection. Now, because you're standing there on your own and there's the audience and you're only one and there's however many people there are in the audience. And there's that fear that something dreadful is going to happen. Now, I'm pretty convinced that some of it is, you know, possibly learned behavior being fear of rejection. But I also think that as a human being, we are hardwired for fear to keep us safe. Because if we weren't, we wouldn't still be alive now. Because if you go back to caveman days, if we weren't hard, hardwired for fear, we'd be dead, wouldn't we? Because an animal would have got us or what have you. So when we perceive danger, it triggers this alarm reaction in the body, which gives us more energy, either to fight whatever we're scared of, or the threat, or run away. But the challenge is, in this day and age, we don't have many physical threats. We're pretty safe, really, in this part of the world, at least. But we do have imaginary fears. But the same reaction in the body takes place when we have this imaginary fear as if it was real, because the unconscious or the subconscious mind can't tell the difference between what is real and what is vividly imagined. So if we realise that as the caveman, we were hardwired for fear, and we still are, to keep us safe, then it's not surprising in a way that we would fear public speaking, because if there's a chance of being rejected, if we were the caveman that was being rejected out of our tribe, what would happen? We'd die. So People feel that public speaking is more scary than death because they feel that they could die. I, that's my theory, all right? And I subscribe to that theory 100%. I think you're completely right. And I think anthropologists have come up with that conclusion as well. So it's probably allied to why humans are the only animals that blush. I guess it's something that we've tied into that. Now, could you talk to me about personality Profiles. I think this is something that you have your own methodology of analysing. <laughs> it's not even a methodology. I, you know, there are, we know there's all sorts of personality profiles out there, and I don't use any of them. But what I discovered really was that certainly with coaching clients, the people that I tend to attract all seem to have the same characteristics going on, which I might have mentioned earlier on, but I can't quite remember now. And that is conscientious, 
often to a fault and therefore and also good at what they do perfectionists and procrastinators procrastination and perfectionism in any case are linked people pleasers so they want to please their clients and please everybody actually and sensitive people and I can be on a call with somebody and in the first few minutes just happen to steer the conversation around and say, oh, you know, it's interesting because I've found that many people are like, many people I work with are like this. And inevitably, the person will say, yes, that's me. So it's quite extraordinary. But I think, again, a lot of it is learned behavior, but some of it, I think, is inherent because if you take it back to the fear thing, people try to be perfectionistic so they don't get rejected. They people please so they don't get rejected. And have you noticed a difference between lawyers and accountants? I mean, this is your specialist area. Are lawyers more one than the other or accountants? You know, have you noticed any differences or similarities between those two groups of professionals? They're all human beings and therefore the behaviours are very, very similar. And the profession itself is almost irrelevant. It's actually how they operate as a human being, you know, going back to the value and the understanding your worth and the self-worth. It's just all behaviours that they've been doing for a long time. And, you know, maybe, for example, well, actually, how many of us would have been told when we were children not to be selfish, for example? Probably all of us. All of us. You know, I'm sure everybody listening to this call, there are probably loads of people who will be nodding their heads when they hear this saying, yeah, me too. So most of us were brought up not to be selfish and most of us were brought up that we needed to please people. So in a way, it's hardly surprising that there's lots of people who've taken on those lessons really well and are out there operating like that. So this is all sort of conditioning and beliefs that people have collected from childhood. And, you know, the, the, the unconscious mind or the subconscious mind, I always use the two interchangeably, rightly or wrongly, collects everything from the moment you're born and records everything. So everything is there. So Vanessa, when it comes to habits, then, I think humans are sort of essentially just their habits, their good habits and their bad habits. Yes. And we should do our best to remove the bad ones and enhance our good ones. How have you in your own life you know, dealt with bad habits and improved your good habits? So yeah, I mean, it's all about awareness, isn't it? You have to awareness and desire to change, really, I suppose, are the two things. Because if you recognize that you have a habit that ultimately is not beneficial to you, then you have two choices. You either carry on with the habit, which is easy to do, or you say, let's look at this habit. How can I, what can I do instead of this? And what's the benefit? I would always get people to look at what's the benefit of doing it, because if there's no benefit, we won't want to do it. <laughs> that again is human nature. We're looking to either move away from pain or move towards pleasure. That's what we do as human beings. So it's saying, right, for example, years ago, I used to smoke and I tried giving up a few times and failed. And then I came to the conclusion that because my voice was really important to me and smoking wasn't good for my voice, I'd better give up smoking. So I set a date a few weeks ahead, which was a random date in the diary. And that day I said, right, that's it. Because I had convinced myself that smoking, the benefits of smoking were not good and the, be the benefits of not smoking would be greater than the benefits of smoking, which was just a bad habit and I didn't probably ultimately really enjoy it. So it's about looking at 
what will we what will we get when we change that habit and well well done giving up that can't be easy and it's amazing that you just picked a random date and went for it because most people struggle with that one what's your daily habits like you know do you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and deal with your emails and then you're going for a run and then it's a (laughs) fruit shake followed by some meditation and then some journaling and then you you know ring up some friends to see how they're doing and uh, then then it's 10 o'clock and you then you do some work I mean what is your day like because I'm I'm always dubious that people do this early rise thing and uh, do their yoga but maybe maybe you're the exception not four o'clock definitely not four o'clock but these days I get I do get up quite early it varies between about mainly five and six six thirty goodness and this year I'm doing the gym about four or five times a week I took on a personal trainer at the beginning of the year because I just it just felt the right thing to do I could sense that I had some weaknesses particularly in lower back and what have you and it's been amazing because that's actually strengthened my body a lot. And I think you can't separate the mind from the body. So I usually do some, not meditation, but that kind of thing. But it's a recorded one, a guided thing, something quite short in the morning to try and get myself in a good place. So I'm not exercising every day. It's four or five times a week. And I do I, I do eat reasonably healthily. I'm not fanatical and I'm not a vegan. And um, then I just get on with my day. Whatever's, whatever needs to be done, what's in the diary, et cetera, et cetera, I just get on with it. Does it mean, though, that your evenings are rather cut short when you're up so early and you can't have any fun? You know, can't watch any good telly. You can't no, no, I do, no, I do like, I look, I don't drink because I'm not really into drinking, but I do, I do like a good bit of telly, uh, a good, especially a good drama. That's my thing. I'm into dramas, so I love all of that and comedy. Sometimes I do go to bed early because if I really need to, then I do. Other times I'll stay up later. It just depends. So I tend to follow what my body's telling me rather than be rigid and saying I'm going to get up so-and-so. So this morning, for example, I set my alarm for five because I thought I wanted to go to the spin class. And I woke up, you won't believe this, Andrew, two minutes to five. And did you make the spin class? I did. I did. And I really enjoyed it because it gave me energy. So I really enjoyed it. If you can enjoy spin, I mean, it, I don't normally link enjoy with spin. What I guess I would say is it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy doing it. But afterwards, I feel a real sense of achievement. And I know that this year I've got physically stronger than I've ever been, probably. So to be 65 and feel stronger now than I was even five years ago or, or maybe more, is got to be a good thing, hasn't it? It must be. Now, as we're going to the end of the podcast, Vanessa, do you have any final tips? I mean, the floor is yours. And anything you wish to educate uh, my listeners about, about about yourself, about how they can improve their lot or how they can improve their sort of negotiating position with lawyers and accountants? The floor is yours, Vanessa. Well, that's a big question, isn't it? I think the thing is, if we're talking to those people who are clients now, is do your homework, write questions that you want to ask. Do not think that they are better than you because they're just human. And believe me, I know they have just as many foibles and problems as all the rest of us. And I think that's about it, really. I think that's sound advice. We are just human. People are often scared coming to see the lawyers and or not to be. We are just, just like anybody else. Um, 
and we have our issues too. Thank you for pointing that out. Now, Vanessa, how do, how do people find out more about you and how do they get in touch with you? So, uh, Vanessa Ugatti, which is U-G-A-T-T-I, and my website is www.thetrueworthexpert.com. I'm sure if you put Vanessa Ugetti in Google, I will come up all over the place because I don't think there's anybody else in the world called Vanessa Ugetti. So I shouldn't be difficult to find. I'm on LinkedIn. That's my main platform for social media. I'm on Facebook, but I'm more a LinkedIn kind of person. And do you want a telephone number? If you wish, you give your personal mobile out if you wish. Or my landline, 01202-743-961. Vanessa, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you for educating me and my listeners. And I wish you all the very best with your business endeavours. Thank you. Thank you very much.